Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man that was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. And he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. My name's Natalie. I'm the Senior Assistant Minister here at Carlton, and it's really lovely to be here with you this morning looking at Mark chapter 2. I want to start with an admission. It's not serious, I don't think, but it is a thing for me. 
Here it is. I really dislike shopping. Hate is probably not too strong a word. I can manage groceries, but anything else I really don't like. Household items, clothes are especially bad. In fact, there's nothing I like about shopping. I have a really terrible spatial memory, so I often get lost in shopping centres. I feel tired when I go shopping. I feel annoyed with the whole process. If I'm shopping for something that I really need and I find it, then I feel pretty happy with that. Probably relieved is actually a better word because it means I don't have to go back again to find whatever it was I was looking for. And my favourite way of shopping is when I'm out and about and I see something that I need and I can buy it kind of almost incidentally without trying. There's one part of shopping that I find kind of interesting. It's a bit odd. Uh, but that is the change rooms. I don't like at all how I look inside the change rooms, but I find the strategy interesting. So there are those really bright, bright lights often in change rooms. And then mirrors. I don't know if you've been in those change rooms where they have multiple mirrors and some of them you can move around. And I kind of find it interesting to play with the angles and see what happens when you move them around and which bits of, it, of yourself you can see that you can never see in any other situation. Change rooms like that are designed to help you see yourself clearly. And this passage today is designed to help us see ourselves clearly, as well as to help us see Jesus clearly in a new way in Mark's gospel. So let's dive in together. First, we're gonna have a look at seeing Jesus clearly in a new way in Mark's gospel. Towards the end of Mark 1 last week, we heard that Jesus was, had travelled throughout Galilee. In verse 39, he was preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, just for context, you can see the region of Galilee up on this map. It's the smallish orange region to the top left of your screens. The border on the east of, of um, Galilee is largely the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. You can see Capernaum there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we heard in Mark 1 that Jesus had already been in Capernaum and he'd preached in the synagogue there. And now he's back there. A few days later we read when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. This was probably back to Simon and Andrew's home where Jesus had earlier healed Simon's mother-in-law. There they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and Jesus preached the word to, hit to them. So Jesus is continuing on his preaching tour of Galilee, this time not preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, but preaching in this home. And he preached the word to them, we hear. That word is what we heard Jesus proclaiming in Mark chapter 1 in verse 14 and 15, the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said then. The kingdom of, of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So as Jesus was preaching in this home, in verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. They couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd and so they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. 
it's hard for us to imagine what this would have been like. It is so far out of our experience. But it was probably a bit chaotic, a big crowd all trying to get close to Jesus so they could hear what he was saying. Not able to fit into the the house. Jesus preaching in the house. These four men coming, carrying a man, lying on a mat, not being able to get him to Jesus. And so carrying him up the steps on the side of the house, up onto the flat roof that houses usually had back then. Digging through the roof, the poles, the sticks, the thatch, the mud that customarily made up a roof on a house in first century Galilee. No doubt a few sticks and clods of mud falling down on top of the crowd inside the house. And then the man coming down, being lowered through this hole in the ceiling, landing on the floor in front of Jesus. I can imagine a murmur of surprise, a moment of expectation. What would Jesus do? We hear in verse five that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Almost certainly not what the man was expecting, not what the friends were expecting, not why they brought him there, not what the crowd was expecting. But we don't hear from any of those people Instead, Jesus tunes in to what the teachers of the law were thinking. Verse 6, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These teachers of the law were Jewish teachers. We've already learned in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus taught in the synagogue as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And now this is really the first of many run-ins between Jesus and these teachers of the law. If you were there, what would you have been thinking to yourself at this moment? I would have been thinking, what about his legs? They're obviously the problem. Maybe another 21st century response might be outrage at Jesus' suggestion that this man needed forgiving. How arrogant of Jesus to cast aspersions on the character of this man. The teachers of the law were certainly offended, but not because Jesus hadn't healed the man and not because Jesus suggested that the man needed forgiving. The teachers of the law were offended at Jesus' presumption that he could forgive this man's sins. They saw this as blasphemy, Jesus showing contempt for God by claiming to be able to do what only God can do. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they're thinking. In verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Which is easier? It's incredibly easy for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. You don't see anything when someone's sins are forgiven. 
How could anyone tell if it was true or not? How could anyone tell if it had happened? It's unfalsifiable. But if Jesus says, get up, take your mat and walk, that's another story, isn't it? The crowd would be watching, waiting. The teachers of the law would be watching and waiting. The man will either get up or he won't. They will know right away if Jesus has power to heal. Jesus has already said the easier thing. Now he says the harder thing. He declares the command that will instantly discredit him if he doesn't have this power. He said to the man in verse 10, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So he got up, he took his mat in full view of all of them, walked out. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Why did Jesus heal the paralysed man? He healed him because he wanted the crowd and us to know that he had authority on earth to forgive sins. He wanted us to see very clearly who he is. So who is Jesus? The teachers of the law actually asked exactly the right question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They had echoing in their minds a whole lot of verses from the Old Testament, verses like this. Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Psalm 103, praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins. Isaiah 43, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And Micah chapter seven, who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. The teachers of the law were correct about this. Only God can forgive sins. One commentary says this, in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament and in Jewish writings, forgiveness of sins remains everywhere the exclusive right of God. The reason is that in every sin, even those committed directly against someone else, God is the party most offended. Remember King David, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he tried to cover it up by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And yet this is his confession before God in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, clearly, David's actions were devastating for Bathsheba and Uriah. But this psalm recognises that God is the one most offended by every sin. He is the one most appalled at the injustice, at the harm of human evil actions. Actions by those who are his creation, made in his image. 
the teachers of the law were absolutely right to ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? Because forgiving sins is a God thing. Just like issuing parking tickets is a parking inspector thing. That's relevant here in Carlton. Or listening in a stethoscope is a doctor thing. But were the teachers of the law right to conclude that Jesus was blaspheming? To answer that question, let's hear again very clearly what Jesus says about himself. In verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This title, the Son of Man, is Jesus' favourite way of referring to himself. For a clue to its meaning, listen to a little bit of Daniel's vision, hundreds of years before Jesus. This is Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The son of man. So let's put the puzzle pieces together. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. The teachers rightly asked, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus said, I want you to know that the son of man, the one who was given authority, glory and sovereign power, the one worshipped by nations and peoples of every language, the one with everlasting dominion, whose kingdom will never end. I want you to know that this son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the man to get up, take his mat and walk. He said the harder thing, and the man did. There are only really two possibilities as we seek to see Jesus clearly. Either the teachers of the law are correct and Jesus was blaspheming, or they're wrong and he is God. There are lots of ideas around about who Jesus is. Some say Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus can't be a good teacher. He's a blasphemer, or he is God. Some say Jesus is a prophet. Jesus can't be a prophet. He's a blasphemer, or he is God. Some say Jesus is a miracle worker. He can't be a miracle worker. He is a blasphemer, or he is God. But the teachers of the law weren't right about this. Brothers and sisters, Jesus healed the paralysed man that we might know that he is God, that we might know that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. But that's not all Jesus did. Later, he himself hung on the cross, shedding his blood, that we too might be offered forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Have you seen Jesus clearly? Do you see Jesus clearly? 
It's a big claim that Jesus is God with power to forgive the sins of the paralysed man. And that through Jesus' death, we too are offered forgiveness of sins. It's one thing for us to acknowledge that Jesus could forgive the paralysed man. It's quite another thing to think we might need that offer of forgiveness as well. To absorb that, we need to not just see Jesus clearly, we need to see ourselves very clearly too. And Mark helps us with that in the next few verses. Now the bright lights of this passage shine directly on us. The mirrors are pointed in our direction. Just like I don't like how I look in the change rooms, we might not like how we look in this passage. In verse 13, once again Jesus went out beside the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him again and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So far in Mark, we've heard Jesus call four men to follow him. First of all, he called Simon and his brother Andrew, and then James and his brother John. Those four men were all fishermen. But Levi is a different kettle of fish. He's a tax collector. And after he answers Jesus' call to follow him, he hosts Jesus for dinner at his home with many other tax collectors and sinners. And again, the teachers of the law ask a really good question. Why does Jesus eat with these people? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? From our vantage point, we might ask a really different question. What's the problem with tax collectors? And who are these sinners? Now, when it came to tax, the Romans had a pretty complex tax system. Maybe that's actually a universal quality of taxation systems. Some taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but taxes on transported goods were collected by local tax collectors. Capernaum was a border town. You can see that on the map there. And so travellers bringing goods from the east and from the north would have to pay tax on those goods as they came through Capernaum. They'd pay those taxes to tax agents like Levi. Now, like Levi, lots of those tax collectors were ethnically Jews, but probably not observant Jews. A Jew who was conscious of the law wouldn't do a job like this because it would mean they would have to be in contact with Gentiles. And that, according to the law, would make them unclean. A tax collector like Levi was also hated and despised for a couple of other reasons. One, because he was working for the oppressors, the Romans. The other, because tax collectors made their money by adding their own cut on top of what the Romans demanded that they collect from people. They made money off their own people. So these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, would never eat at Levi's home. They would also never eat with other people who they called sinners. 
The Greek translation of the Psalms uses the word sinners where we have wicked in English. And this is who the Pharisees had in mind. I read one list where the Pharisees described sinners as, uh, it's a bit of a random list actually, gamblers, money lenders, people who race doves for sport, people who trade on the Sabbath, thieves, the violent, shepherds and tax collectors. Now, some of those people in that list were criminals, but some were just poor people or people who were too ignorant to study the Old Testament law, who were too ignorant to be able to keep up with all the extra rules the Jewish teachers imposed on people. It's easy to see why the teachers of the law wouldn't want to associate with these people. But Jesus and his disciples did. They ate at Levi's home with these tax collectors and sinners. And when the teachers of the law asked the disciples, why does Jesus do this? This is what he replied. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So practically, Jesus replied with an obvious analogy. Healthy people don't need doctors. Sick people do. Ironically and truthfully, Jesus was saying in effect to people who think they are righteous, I have nothing to say. But to those who know they have need, I've come to them. Now in the first century world, Jewish world, no one was surprised by the idea that some people were sinners. But the teachers of the law were really confident that wasn't them. They were proud of keeping the laws of the Old Testament. They were proud of their own goodness. The trouble was they were measuring themselves by their own standards and not by God's standards. They thought they were being charitable, but it was only to people who they found culturally acceptable. They thought they were concerned for God, but actually they were more concerned for their own reputations. They thought they were morally pure, but their morality was only skin deep. It was only when Jesus confronted them that the truth of who they were was exposed. We live in such a different world to first century Israel, a world where the word sin is almost unknown, a world where we culturally demonise some, probably people who commit violent crimes. We live in a world where we often honour others, often those who we see as victims or the oppressed, or those who we see bringing change (laughs) to our world, much needed reform. We live in a world where we often despise some, often people who land in a different place politically than where we land. And we live in a world where we often excuse our own failures. A guy called Ben Shaw writes this. People often feel that they're a good person because they're standing in the room of their own limited conscience, darkened by their culture and their own flexible standards. We feel pretty good about ourselves because of the distorted principles we've created to suit our own desires. But when we see what Christ was like and when we listen to what he had to say, about ethics, 
goodness, kindness, humility, love and self-sacrifice. We realise that we've been looking into a darkened mirror our whole life. When you're confronted with the life and teachings of Jesus, it's like suddenly having a mirror held up to your face with all the light bulbs in the room turned on, or like standing in a change room. Only then do you realise that you're not so good, clean, loving, kind, charitable and considerate after all. Paul makes this point really clearly in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how clearly do we see ourselves? Perhaps a little provocatively, I could ask, do you see yourself as a sinner or as a saint? And what does that mean about how you've responded to Jesus' words? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Maybe you see yourself not exactly as a saint, but maybe as someone who's pretty good. Maybe you think this diagnosis of Jesus that we're all sinners is a bit extreme. Certainly, it's unique to Christianity. In other religions, there's a belief that somehow, in some way, we can heal ourselves, we can restore ourselves, we can save ourselves. Buddhism has the eightfold path to enlightenment and peace. In Islam, there are five pillars to adhere to so that hopefully you reach paradise. Atheists often look to better education or better systems of government to bring transformation into the world. But humanity's track record shows that we are a really long way from making this world the kind of place that we'd love for it to be. Jesus says that without him, we will never make it. He offers a different way. He offers us forgiveness for our sins and calls us to follow him into a new life. Perhaps you suspect you're a sinner or you know you're a sinner. Be assured that there is no sin too big for Jesus to forgive. He went to the cross to offer each of us forgiveness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to take that step of deciding that you will follow him. He offers the joy of forgiveness, freedom from the burden of our wrongdoing, our sin. Let me encourage you to ask God to help you follow Jesus and talk to me or someone else here today. If you know you're a sinner and you are a follower of Jesus, be reminded this morning of the beauty of the forgiveness that Jesus offers a clean slate every day. Each week as we gather at church, we spend some time praying a prayer of confession. We've already done that this morning. Let me encourage you to let that be a real prayer for you every week. Pray that way at home as well. As you do that, be reminded of the confidence that we can have that God has forgiven our sins in Jesus. Let me encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be intentional about your faith. We heard that the friends of the paralysed man had faith that Jesus could see. Is your faith in Jesus visible in the way that you live? And finally, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to examine your heart. 
Let's not fall into the trap of the teachers of the law and think we're better than we are. Let's not fall into the trap of the teachers of the law and write some people off as beyond God's reach. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So should we. If there are people we're tempted to judge or to despise, they are the people we should be praying for. They are the people we should be inviting into our lives. Have you seen yourself clearly? Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And have you seen Jesus clearly? He said, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let's finish by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you make it really clear who Jesus is in this passage. Thank you that you sent Jesus into our world to die that we might be forgiven. And God, thank you that in this passage you also show us who we are, all of us, in our need for you, in our need for forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for that beautiful offer of forgiveness, of cleansing, of new life, of a new start. Please help each of us to take up that offer and to follow Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.